You are slipping into a distorted dimension. Reality and fantasy are changing places past the event horizon. Bullies are victims, men are women, and abuse is love. You weren't here just yesterday. Reality is still out there. But to find your way back, you have to notice it. And now, the Disaffected Podcast with Joshua Slocum. Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. First, I want to talk about some very disturbing behavior in online communities of parents who claim that they are that they have transgender children. I also want to talk about, I'm going to touch on something that we talk about in more detail on the TV show uh, that comes out on Sundays, about the unrealistic false ideas about the lack of difference between the sexes and how that plays out in popular culture. The first thing I want to share with you here, this is not the first time I've seen this. This is from a Facebook group called Parents of Transgender slash Non-Binary Kids. I have been seeing posts like this for years. And it's another example of Munchausen syndrome by proxy done right out in the open shamelessly because people can't see it when they hear the word trans. And of course, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is largely a mother's sin. There are some fathers who do it, but the overwhelming majority of parents who sicken or try to represent their children as sick or special or disabled in some way when in fact they are not our mothers. Here's the post. What you can't see here is that it, it well, <laughs> you can't see anything, can you? Because this is audio. I was going to say this is radio, but then somebody will be like, nah, nah, it's a podcast. You're not on the radio waves. Yeah, I know, Becky. Okay. So anyway, there are pictures, photographs to accompany this of very, very small children's underwear. Here's the text. Mamas of trans girls or any kid who wants to tuck. Now I'm going to have to stop. I'm going to have to break away. Tucking is a word that was adopted from drag queen culture. Can you guess what it is? Yes, it's that. It's taking the penis and tucking it back between the legs and strapping it down to give the illusion of, of a crotch that has a vulva rather than a penis and testicles. So back to the post. Mamas of trans girls, or any kid who wants to tuck, I found the cutest, most comfortable tucking underwear on Etsy. My daughter loved them so much I messaged the seller and asked her to put together an entire pack of them for us. She's extremely tiny. She can still wear 3T clothing at six years old, but it's short. And these fit perfect. 
they go all the way down to a size four toddler, which is what my daughter got. If you're looking for panties that will give a smooth look in leggings, etc., I highly recommend these. I'm sharing a link to the shop, but she let me pay via Facebook to make it easier. The photo I'm posting is the set of undies she made for us. She is also she also has the guinea pig ones from the listing. So cute. <laughs> oh my god, that's so sweet and cute, isn't it, mommy? What a good mommy you are. This is a woman who has a son, a six-year-old son, who says her son is a daughter and claims her son wants to tuck, thinks it's normal, helpful, lovely, loving, to help her son tuck his penis away. It's like a drag castration, isn't it? dry run for the real thing. They are not afraid of talking about this in public. Why? Because we haven't made them afraid. How did we get from a place where in the 1990s we could watch a movie like the horror movie The Sixth Sense, which features a little girl who was killed by her mother. Her mother was poisoning her surreptitiously and telling everybody that she had a fatal illness, when in fact it was the mother who killed her with the poison. How can we go from recognizing this in popular culture, so much so that it was a, uh, a major scene in that movie, to this today? How does trans have this bewitching quality? And I want to... There's something else about this that's even sicker than what you see on the face of it. As I've said before on the show, when I was a, a boy... I had what is today called gender dysphoria. I thought that I had been born in the wrong body because I was effeminate. That I was either a biological mistake or that I was being punished by God. This is what I went back and forth between. And I didn't understand why I was punished by God because I prayed every night. I prayed to be a normal boy. I felt capital B bad, and capital D, dirty. And when I was about seven years old, somewhere seven or eight years old, so I used to, I used to dress up as a girl, so to speak, when my mother wasn't looking. Sometimes my grandmother would let me wear her dresses at her house and her costume jewelry. When I was at home playing in my room by myself, I would take a blanket and a safety pin and pin it around me so that I could be <laughs> Nellie Olson or some other female character from Little House on the Prairie. Basically, mainly Nellie because she was the most interesting one being a mega bitch. That sound you're hearing is delicious chamomile tea. Mm-mm. I would tuck. I would push my penis back between my legs to see what I was supposed to look like. I'm not the only young boy who's done this. This is a common experience. I don't know how common, but I know for sure I'm not the only one because I've talked to gay male friends who've done the same thing. For boys 
who are feminine, and not all of them turn out to be gay, but about 75% of children who exhibit what we call gender dysphoria statistically will grow up to be gay. Had this, had I been a child in today's world, it's very likely that this behavior that I was engaging in, which was a precursor to mental instability, Lots of things in my life were precursors to mental instability. <clears throat> it's an abusive household. This would have been concretized. This would have been made permanent. I would have been told, yes, you were in fact born in the wrong body. There is something wrong with you. You're not a real man. You're not a real boy. You shouldn't have a penis. Girls don't have penises. So let's take care of that for you. Not only would I have been put on a path to puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones, rendering me sterile. <laughs> Not that it matters now, do you see any kids? <laughs> I joke, but it does matter, right? That choice would have been taken away from me. But I very likely would have become a permanent borderline personality disorder case. Because my maladaptive coping mechanisms and mentations would have been affirmed, not, well, not criticized, not, not, I wouldn't have been given any help for them. Nobody would have recognized them as signs of, of psychological distress or signs of abuse, which is what they were. And this makes me furious. This makes me so angry. It's bad enough that this happens, but the fact that it is socially acceptable enough that women can post this shit in Facebook groups and face n no effective social consequences at all, whereas people like me and people like many of you listening to this right now who object to this child abuse, we are the ones who are targeted. We are the ones who people go after our jobs for. We are the ones that people try to ruin our reputations, and they do it by projection. They call us child abusers. And I'll tell you something else. I am not certain anymore that I believe that it's mainly males who have pedophilic tendencies. We know there's a percentage of the male population who are pedophiles. We've always known that. But I've sort of taken it on faith that this is largely a male problem. And I'm sure, even if that's not the case, even if, let's just say for the sake of argument, that pedophilic tendencies are evenly split between male and female. I don't know that that's the case. Take it for argument. They would express themselves differently male and female pedophiles, on average. Some behaviors would be more common to one sex than another. But when I see the number of mothers, this, this woman here, don't tell me this woman doesn't have a sexual perversion. How is this not sexual perversion? How is this not indulging in an erotic fantasy about a child? Oh yeah, it's a castration fantasy too. <laughs> Let me read one of these sentences to you again. If you're looking for panties that will give a smooth look in leggings, I highly recommend these. 
so cute. She's getting off on this. Yeah, it is Freudian. Mm-hmm. These women are gorgons. They are witches, and they are evil. And I would like to know how many of them there really are. I wonder if there's any reliable research. And if you doubt this, if this sounds too pat to you, if you want to say, surely that's somebody winding you up, don't bother with me, okay? I've been tracking this for years. I've seen enough of this. This isn't just a troll. You don't believe this one? I could show you a dozen others. Two dozen. Three dozen. Why don't you join one of these Facebook groups? Why don't you pretend to be a concerned mommy? Join up. See what you find. Watch them. And then come back and ask yourself if you really think this is just a troll. Saw another image on social media that, that that is just great. On the on the show that is coming out, well, as I record this, it's it's Sunday evening and and uh, the TV show will be out actually in a little while. So you'll hear this after the show. But on the TV show tonight, we are going to be talking about um there's a portion where we talk about the youthful better way to say it, surprising number of young people who seem to believe that biological differences in sex, particularly in bodily strength, actually aren't real and there's something that was made up by the patriarchy or made up in the 20th century or a Western European construct. I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it does. But I've seen it. it, it the, well, it, and again, this is something that afflicts young women. I haven't met very many. Yeah, there's, oh God, in any of these groups, probably 15 to 20% of them are men who spout the same thing, but the rest of them are women. I haven't met very many men who actually don't believe that men are stronger than women. But this image, let's see, it's it's a square done Brady Bunch style, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So it's a square with nine square pictures within it, and they are all female characters from recent superhero type films. Uh, they're all badass bitches. They're all staring into the camera. One of them looks like a warrior. She's got a spear. Another one is wearing uh, breastplate armor and has got a sword. Somebody else is, well, one of them looks like the Borg Queen. One of them's got a gun. And over each of the nine pictures is one word of text. I'll read them all together. Don't you ever say that we're the weaker gender. Oh, what are you going to do? Drop kick me across the studio like Lucy Liu? Give me a break. They can't even say the same. Don't you ever say we're the weaker gender. We've got to get back to reality. It's a fact that men and women are biologically different. It's a fact that almost all men are stronger than almost all women. There will always be exceptions, but that is just nature. You find sex dimorphism throughout the animal kingdom. No, not every animal. No, not exactly in the same proportion as humans. This is another thing. I feel like I have to fucking caveat everything I say so carefully. Yeah, even among 
even among the listeners to my show, I, I, I feel like I have to make sure that you know that I have taken into account every bit of nuance and every bit of this doesn't fit your stereotype so that I won't have to spend more time doing it later. And I don't know why I do it because it never works because somebody always does anyway. Halfway mark, time for a break. We'll pick up Dracula on the other side. Kevin and Josh work themselves to the bone to bring you dark and disturbing content every week. There are starving listeners overseas who get no podcasts at all. Show appropriate gratitude today by making a donation at patreon.com forward slash disaffected or at subscribestar.com forward slash disaffected. Do it for mother. Welcome back. I have been re-listening for the second time to Dracula as an audiobook. Oh, if you just heard that buzzer, that's my 1970s um, dryer in the basement telling me my clothes are done. Have I talked about that before? When I moved into my house, there were brand new electronified washers and dryers, and neither of them worked because their computer ship chipsets didn't work so I hauled them off to the dump and I bought two I bought a refurbished set from the late 70s and they've worked for 12 years like a damn dream so anyway that was the buzzer okay Dracula listening to Dracula on audiobook if you like gothic horror if you like classic horror if you like Victorian stories fan de siècle stories I cannot recommend highly enough to you Audible's production of Dracula. It is transfixing. Stars Tim Curry and Alan Cumming. And the the entire cast is is voiced uh, by professional actors. It is atmospheric. It I have read Dracula a couple of times when I was much younger, but something about hearing this told as a story brought this alive and made it richer to me in a way that I I hadn't credited that novel for before. Run out and get it. Another good one, if you like this kind of thing, is The Woman in White, the most famous novel by the early 20th century author Wilkie Collins. Uh, Again, Audible's production. People ask me, like, well, which one do you mean? When I say Audible's production, I mean Audible, the company itself producing these things. There are many, many different versions of these novels on there, but I mean the ones that are produced by the Audible company. One of the things I I like about the book is the time that it was written in. Dracula was published in 1897, right at the end of the Victorian era. Queen Victoria would die. I think she died in 1906, and then we went into the Edwardian era. This is a time of... And I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry because this sounds like liberal arts jargon, but it is actually the correct word. These are the interstices, the boundaries, the borderlands between one epoch and another. The 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and the 20th century that was electrified and electronified. And the older I get, the less I think of the 19th century as olden times, the way I did when I was a kid watching Little House on the Prairie. The reality is, living in late Victorian times, these are thoroughly modern times. Electricity is already running the telegraph since the mid-1850s. 
Homes by 1897 are beginning to get telephones. They're not common, but they're beginning to get in there. They have trains, they have steam locomotives, and these things, you guys. This is one of the things that is, to me, really fascinating about the boundary line between one age and another. When a new technology is just about to eclipse an old one, there's a fierce competition between the old technology and the new technology. And it it ends up refining the old technology to the height of what it can be. And you find a lot of that in the late 19th century. As I sit here recording, I have the kerosene lamp going, as I usually do in the winter. And if you find this interesting, um, you can do a little reading about this. This is called a center draft lamp. It's a table lamp with a ginormous round cylindrical wick, not a little flat wick like the oil lamps you remember at your grandma's house. This is a real workhorse. It puts out the equivalent of a moderate wattage uh, electric light, quite a bit of heat. And lamp technology, kerosene had to compete with electricity. And so they came up with things like this. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this, this lamp is, it's at least a hundred years old. Um, I didn't have to do any repair on it. Uh, It could use a polish, but it works exactly the same as when it came out of the box or off the shelf years ago. It's a wonderful light. Um, It's a wonderful room heater. And you see it also with, um, with things like, like trains, right? Um, although that came later, diesel started to compete, I think in the thirties. Uh, but even, you know, even in the 19th century, I mean, steam trains and stuff, these were no joke, you guys, Britain, America, and plenty of other countries by the last quarter of the 19th century had steam locomotives that could pull a fully loaded passenger train easily at 70 to hundred miles an hour. Um, we haven't we haven't gotten much further uh, in speed in the U.S. I mean, of course, we have, uh, you know, there are trains that are capable of going much faster than that, but that's an infrastructure problem and some topic for another show. So anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little far afield from Dracula, but I love this period. And Dracula is absolutely full of examples of, of the world changing this way as one technological paradigm gives way to another. But what I want to talk about is the vampire as the narcissist, the vampire as the cluster B. I think that our mythology and our folklore, and I'm not an expert on on these things, I'm I'm just a, a reader, but particularly our supernatural mythology and folklore often incorporates... Well, like any mythology, it it's about human nature. I think the personality disordered, the morally insane, the character disordered, feature very heavily in the vampire mythology, the succubus mythology, some of the ghost stories. These are people who, in times past, were often thought to be possessed by the devil. Not only cluster bees, uh, and maybe not even primarily uh, people with epilepsy, I think were frequent victims of, of the idea that they were possessed by Satan, um, maybe other movement disorders. But <clears throat> you still see it today. Um, it's not uncommon when I'm talking with people, either online or in real life, about 
the behaviors that are common to narcissists and borderlines and psychopaths, and they will say, this is demonic possession. And some of them mean it. Some of them believe in demonic possession. Um, Some of them probably don't believe it as literally. It's as good a metaphor as you can get for the cluster B mind. It's It brings up the fact that we're looking at a person who looks human and sounds human, but there's something inhuman about them. Dracula himself, the main character of the story, well, he's not even as interesting as some of the some of the secondary characters. But when you think about The vampire mythology. What can vampires do? They can shapeshift, at least in in the kind of vampire mythology that Bram Stoker used in Dracula, and, and created to some degree. He takes the form of a bat. He takes the form of a wolf. He can turn into a mist. What he does is assume the form of something familiar but other than human in order to get by humans, to be undetectable. And there's a sense in which cluster bees, some of them, are shapeshifters. They will adopt a persona, a mask of somebody else or another kind of person or what, or a simulacrum of a happy person or a charismatic person. But they often don't get it quite right. There are a couple of scenes I want to um, talk about. One of the secondary characters in Dracula is Lucy Westenraw. So we've got, let me give you a quick sketch for those of you who haven't read the book, or if if you think you know Dracula, but you just remember one of the movies, you you may not remember the outline. So what happened, it's, it's set largely in England. Jonathan Harker is a main character. He's a solicitor. That means a lawyer. He is sent to Transylvania by his firm to meet with Count Dracula. Count Dracula is buying, um, an old abbey, in London as his new residence. Jonathan Harker travels to Dracula's castle in Transylvania to go over the transaction, bring him plans, tell him about customs, duties, these sorts of things. While he is there, Jonathan Harker, he is kept prisoner by Dracula, although it's never openly acknowledged. And Dracula is brilliant, charismatic, charming, frightening, And as time goes on, Jonathan becomes more and more aware that something supernatural is going on here. He goes back to England. He is affianced to Mina Murray, who becomes Mina Harker. Mina Harker's best friend is Lucy Westenraw, who is engaged to be married to Arthur. Lucy becomes one of Dracula's victims. She's one of his first victims in the story. She wastes away. He's coming in at night, sometimes in the form of a bat. He's sucking her blood dry. Doctors can't figure out what's going on. She she gets transfusions, the blood of four men pumped into her body, and still she's wasting away. Still the blood go, um, is going away. Nobody can figure it out. And then she dies, and of course she is undead. And I'm not going to say that the story is about cluster bees as vampires. We used to do a lot of this in college and we, you know, critical reading 
of text and reinterpretation. And and professors and students alike would say, what the book is really about is X. I'm not saying that my interpretation here is what the book is about, but it is a way to read it. And I think it might be an interesting way to consider it. I think the female cluster B shows up in the character of Lucy Weston Ross. So there's a scene after she's buried. She's entombed in the family tomb. And people discover that she has been getting out and walking at night and children are are being killed and left for dead. Let me read to you a passage. When th- This is a scene in the graveyard when Lucy has been out hunting at night and she's trying to come back to her tomb and she's confronted by uh, Jonathan Harker, Arthur, um, Dr. Van Helsing, and, and somebody else. Quote, when Lucy, I call the thing that was before us Lucy because it bore her shape, saw us, she drew back with an angry snarl, such as a cat gives when taken unawares. Then her eyes ranged over us. Lucy's eyes in form and color, but Lucy's eyes unclean and full of hellfire instead of the pure, gentle orbs we knew. At that moment, the remnant of my love passed into hate and loathing. Had she then to be killed, I could have done it with savage delight. As she looked, her eyes blazed with unholy light, and the face became wreathed with a voluptuous smile. Oh, God, how it made me shudder to see it. With a careless motion, she flung to the ground, callous as a devil, the child that up to now she had clutched strenuously to her breast, growling over it as a dog growls over a bone. The child gave a sharp cry and lay there moaning. There was a cold-bloodedness in the act which wrung a groan from Arthur. When she advanced to him with outstretched arms and a wanton smile, he fell back and hid his face in his hands. She still advanced, however and with a languorous, voluptuous grace, said, Come to me, Arthur. Leave these others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come, and we can rest together. Come, my husband, come. There was something diabolically sweet in her tone, something of the tinkling of glass when struck, which rang through the brains, even of us who had heard the words addressed to another. As for Arthur, he seemed under a spell. Moving his hands from his face, he opened wide his arms. End quote. What does Lucy do here? I think this is in some way a portrait of the female cluster B as the seductress. She profanes and mocks the actions that are seen as natural to a woman or a mother. Notice that her victims are children. When she goes out at night hunting, she sucks the blood of babies and toddlers. It's a mockery. It's a grotesque inversion of breastfeeding. She clutches the child to her breast, but she sucks the life out of him. And when Arthur comes along, her fiancé, the man that in life she would have been wed to and would have shared the marriage bed with, what does she do? She throws the child to the ground like it was nothing. And she goes to get her man. Sound like any female cluster bees you've ever heard of? Sure does to me. 
I also want to share another one with you. Here's a description. Quote, this, this happens before the scene I just read to you. Quote, when he again lifted the lid off Lucy's coffin, we all looked, Arthur trembling like an aspen, and saw that the body lay there in all its death beauty. But there was no love in my own heart, nothing but loathing for the foul thing which had taken Lucy's shape without her soul. I could see even Arthur's face grow hard as he looked. Presently, he said to Van Helsing, Is this really Lucy's body, or only a demon in her shape? It is her body, and yet not it. But wait a while, and you all see her as she was and is. She seemed like a nightmare of Lucy as she lay there, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained, voluptuous mouth, which it made one shudder to see. The whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Has the shape and not the soul. And that's a feeling that you get from a lot of character-disordered people. That they don't have a soul or they don't have a whole soul inside of them. Anyway, interesting to contemplate. One more, and then I'll I'll wrap up for today. This is from this is this is what is so interesting. Van Helsing is the professor from the Netherlands, who is a friend to Jonathan Harker, um, and who is engaged to come help them figure out what is going on with Count Dracula, what is going on with Lucy, why is she dying. Um, and, and he figures out that, that it's vampires. These are men of science. The 19th century is a scientific age. And Dracula is also a story about struggling to reconcile traditional religious and spiritual beliefs with the rationality and mechanical view of the world that science and technology were successfully convincing people was real, right? So this is from a dialogue where he, Van Helsing, who himself has struggled to accept what he's seen but has accepted it, is trying to convince his compatriots that as crazy as this is, it's actually real. Quote, All we have to go upon are traditions and superstitions. These do not at the first appear much when the matter is one of life and death, nay, of more than either life or death. Yet must we be satisfied in the first place because we have to be. No other means is at our control. And secondly, because after all, these things, tradition and superstition, are everything. Does not the belief in vampires rest for others, though not alas for us, on them? A year ago, which of us would have received such a possibility in the midst of our scientific, skeptical, matter-of-fact 19th century. We even scouted a belief that we saw justified under our very eyes. Take it, then, that the vampire and the belief in his limitations and his cure rest for the moment on the same base. For, let me tell you, he is known everywhere that men have been. In old Greece... In old Rome, he flourished in Germany all over, in France, in India, even in the Chernesees, and in China, so far away from us in all ways, there even is he. 
and the peoples fear him at this day. He have followed the wake of the berserker Icelander, the devil-begotten Hun, the Slav, the Saxon, the Magyar. So far, then, we have all we may act upon, and let me tell you that very much of the beliefs are justified by what we have seen in our own so unhappy experience. The vampire live on and cannot die by mere passing of the time. He can flourish when that he can fatten on the blood of the living. The personality disordered, the morally insane, the possessed, have always been among us, everywhere on earth, everywhere that men and women have been. That's the show. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again in a couple of days. Well, hello, listener. It's Mommy again. You're quite welcome for the fine programming. Why don't you show some gratitude? Send Mommy some money on Patreon, patreon.com slash disaffected, or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. You wouldn't want Mommy to starve, would you? And if you don't love your dear mother, you're not invited to find us on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey for our hottest weekly content. I guess this is goodbye forever. Forever.